0: 2 Kings chapter 2. At this point in 2 Kings, Elijah has been taken to heaven in the whirlwind, and Elisha is grieving over the loss of his spiritual mentor and father, But, but God put it on Elisha's heart to be Elijah's spiritual son, to carry on the work that Elijah had started. And so despite the grief and the trauma that Elisha is experiencing right now, he decides to take up his former mentor's cloak. He answers God's call. But where to go from here? Like it's one thing to kind of have that moment where you lay it down and you go, okay, God, here I'm going to go. Where do you go from here? It's, it's one thing to turn around and get back to work, but it's another to find yourself in a place where you need to trust the Lord like your mentor did. You know, so people, they say, I, I want that person's job. Most of the time, people ask me, would you like to be this or that? No, I don't want that person's job. (laughs) And Elijah, he finds himself now in a place where he's got to trust the Lord like Elijah did. Finds himself with immediate challenges to live out this call. And so, the question as we finish up chapter 2 tonight is, will he see those challenges as obstacles or as opportunities? So, chapter 2, we begin in verse 13 right after Elisha saw Elijah taken away. And it says in verse 13, he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, and he went back, and he stood by the bank of the Jordan. Now, remember how they get across the Jordan in the first place? Because Elijah came, and he took his mantle, his cloak, he struck the waters, and the waters parted, well, you know, that's, praise the Lord, that's awesome, that's great. You hear the stories about what other people have experienced and what they've gone through, or maybe even you saw God do awesome things where you were present, but maybe it wasn't you doing them. And then all of a sudden, you, you find yourself in your face with the same situation. You go, hmm. He goes there and he stands by the same exact spot, and there's the water's back. It's not like he was just waiting for him to come back across the river. What Elijah had done earlier was no longer in place, and so Elisha could either find some place to ford the river safely, or he could believe Elijah's final message from God to him, which was, if you see me go, then that's, that's basically God saying, I have called you to this. And so you need to take, up, take it up, become that spiritual son that you say you want to be. So verse 14, It says, Elisha took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. Elisha does exactly what Elijah did, but with one difference. He asks God a question. He says, where is the God of Elijah? I get chills when I hear that because He doesn't say like, well, where where is the power of Elijah? I think so often there are times when we see God using someone else and we think to ourselves, well, God could never use me to a similar capacity, or God could never use me in a miraculous way. And we come to the river and we kind of just stare and look at it and like, okay, I guess I'll find another way. But Elijah here, he he had asked to be Elijah's spiritual son. He had asked to carry on this family name, so to speak, to be the guy who would hear from God and then speak to the nation. And Elisha knows, I can't do that in my own strength. It's one thing to want it, and it's another thing to have to go out and do it. And so, Elijah's question in this moment is a, a very human one. It's a very, a very visceral question, you know, that we feel it in our in our bones. He says, will you speak to me like you did to Elijah, Lord? Will you answer me like you answered Elijah, Lord? Will you use me like you used Elisha? God's answer shows that his presence and his power would be available to this man as well. It says, the waters part hither and thither, and Elijah went over. Elijah, he moved forward in the power of God's presence to fulfill God's plan for his life. Elijah moved move forward in the power of God's presence to fulfill God's plan for his life. And what God did through him here caught the attention of all of his fellow students. Look at verse 15. And when the sons of the prophets which were to view, which is just, it means they were standing afar off watching. Remember, they followed for a bit, but then watched from a distance. It says, which when the sons of the prophets which were to view, At Jericho saw him, so they see him coming back. First off, that he's alone, and then he's coming through water. He's walking through a, a river that the water's been parted. When they see that, it says that they said, the spirit of Elijah does rest on Elisha. And so they came to meet him, and they bowed themselves to the ground before him. Now this is interesting again. I brought this up last week when we talked about this idea of the spirit of Elijah, uh, of Elijah. It's not this idea of like Elijah's spirit's gonna go somewhere else. You know, it's not like Elijah was going up into the sky and all of a sudden he's like. Oh! I'm missing myself now, and his spirit comes and rests upon Elisha. The word here, of, a prepositional phrase, it doesn't refer to source, that Elijah's spirit went somewhere else. It refers to connection. In other words, the same spirit that was connected to Elijah, the Holy Spirit, God's spirit, was now connected in the same way to Elisha. They recognize that when they see this. And that's interesting because Luke chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, says the same thing about John the Baptist. He was empowered by the same Holy Spirit that empowered Elijah. When Zacharias, his dad, was in there and the angel appeared to him and told him, your wife's going to have a son. And he tells him in Luke 1.15, For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. He won't drink wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist had the same type of ministry as Elijah to turn a wayward people's heart back to the Lord. And so that's what we see Elijah doing. Things are not great in Israel at this time. They still have wicked kings, idolatry is abounding, and so he's he's taking up that call to bring a wayward people's heart back to the Lord. And so these students recognize that he's the guy. He's the guy now, and they come, they meet him, and they bow down before him. Just as God had called Elijah to lead the prophets for these last few decades, these students recognized that God's call for Elijah is now to lead them. What are our marching orders, boss? I mean, clearly God's anointed you. So what, where are we going? What are we doing? It's fascinating. At every school Elijah had stopped at, before he was taken to heaven in the whirlwind, the students would pester Elijah because, oh, what are we going to do after Elijah's gone? Don't you know your master's going to be gone after today? Well, this was God's answer. I have someone else who's going to lead you, and this miracle proves it. Quick thought. Don't get frustrated with God's people when they're freaking out. That's like my mantra, like, don't freak out, Will, because everybody else is freaking out. Just pointing to Jesus. God wasn't frustrated with them. You know, God's first message to Elijah wasn't, tell them how disappointed I am and that they all kept pestering you about this. No. God's answer was this, I have someone who's going to lead you. God saw their concerns and He met their need. Living out God's call, there'll be a few things we're going to see in the rest of this chapter tonight about living out God's call. But living out God's call, first off, means recognizing that the people God has called you to lead belong to Him, not to you. They belong to Him. They're His sheep, His people. So, point them to the Lord like Elisha did. You know, don't get frustrated because they irritate you. Living out God's call will provide you many things that look like obstacles, but they are actually opportunities. That's a quick thought, On a lengthier thought. Some claim to have a call from God, and some even browbeat or threaten God's people into following them. But the person who is genuinely called by God relies on the Lord to confirm His call. You don't need to browbeat anybody into following you if you're truly called by the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul said, listen, be imitators of, well, this is Ephesians, he said, be imitators of God. And then he said, follow me as I follow Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says that, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, the cool part is Paul did follow Jesus, right? His character and his gifting from God was plain to see. So there were no threats or no boasts necessary. In fact, the few times that Paul had to defend his ministry, he almost seems embarrassed to have to discuss his call from God. Like, he'll say things like, I feel like I'm talking like the world here. He'll say things like that because he's kind of embarrassed that he has to even bring this topic up. Jesus was no different when referring to his authority. He pointed to his life. He pointed to his teaching. In John chapter 8, verses 46 and 47, he explained to these guys, he said, Which of you convinces me of sin? And, and if I say the truth, then why don't you believe me? He that is of God hears God's words. You, therefore, do not hear them because you are not of God. So, husbands, do you feel the need to browbeat your wife by pointing out your position? Or does she respect you because God's work is evident in your life? I don't, I don't remember when I heard it, but it was years ago. That I, I think it was in a book, and, it, and I think it talked about, about a book about being a husband, and it talked about the idea is when your wife is upset, go look in the mirror to find the source. Now, I know that's not always true. Our wives are sinners saved by grace too. But the idea is very often if I see my wife agitated, I need to go take a good hard look in the mirror and, and see say, Lord, am I being like you? Because the truth is, perhaps I'm leading very differently than you lead. Perhaps I'm, I'm not leading in this way where I am leading in such a way that she she trusts me and that she, she respects me. Parents, do you feel the need to threaten your children by pointing out your position? My dad always used to say, Dad, you know, why do I have to do this? Because I'm your father. Now, he's not wrong, but I don't think that's the best tactic. What we explain, try to explain to our kids is we'll say… And our kids, we were taught from very early age, you don't ask why. Why is… is like? If you start asking why when you're little, you start asking why when you're big. It's the truth. If you start asking why when you're little, you start asking why when you're big. It's just who you're asking is different. You start asking why to God all the time. Why, God? Why, God? Why? And last I checked, the Lord doesn't give me answers. Like, I mean, now there are some answers that he'll give in his word, right? But there are other times where the Lord says, you just need to trust me on this one. You just need to follow me on this one. You remember Peter? The Lord told him in John twenty one, he says, Peter, so you're gonna get martyred for your, for in, in the end. And he's like, Okay. What's gonna to happen to him? John, you know, <laughs> you know John, you know, the man who leans on Jesus' breast, you know. Everybody loves John, you know, everything's happy for John, right? <laughs> Did I make some of you uncomfortable? <laughs> What's going to happen to him? What's going to happen to special boy over here? <laughs> Jesus says, P tarries till I come back. Or he doesn't. What's that to you? You follow me. You know, there's times the Lord doesn't explain. Why am I going this way and this person's going this way? I, I'm not going to tell you. I just want you to trust me. Follow me. I love you. I care about you. And I care about others that you're going to be connected to. And that's, this is what needs to happen in your life. To impact those you're connected to. Certainly, we teach our children and say, listen, you need to honor your mom and dad because the Word says so, and when you honor your mom and your dad, you're honoring the Lord, you're obeying the Lord. But it's not just, well, I'm, I'm your father. Well, yes, but it needs to go to the next layer. You know, when you're disobeying me, you're disobeying the Lord. Do you feel the need to threaten your kids by pointing out your position, or have they learned to trust you because God's work is evident in your life? My kids know I'm not perfect. They see all the flaws. They, sometimes they make fun of me for my flaws now that they're older. But, you know, I ask, I ask Bev mostly, I say, what do you hear the kids say about me? Like, do they respect me? Or like, are there character flaws that bother them that they don't want to trust me and things like that? Those are things that you need to be aware of. Like We want to live in such a way that that our kids trust that, hey, we're trying to follow the Lord ourselves. So when we're saying, you need to come this way, that there's that sense of, well, my dad's trying to follow the Lord. My mom's trying to follow the Lord. This same question can be applied to employers or authority figures in society or leaders in the church. If you have to call out your position in a conversation, you're probably already in the wrong somewhere. Just the case. Now, let me counterbalance this, clear evidence of God's Spirit working in you doesn't guarantee everyone will follow your lead. They have decisions to make as well. But it does mean that those who are yielded to the Lord, they will follow your lead because they'll be following the Lord who's working in you. Living out God's call, it means letting the Lord establish you, not seeking to establish yourself, because the cool part is what God builds stands. What you and I build can crumble at any moment, but what the Lord builds stands. Now, these guys, they recognize God's call to follow Elisha, but that doesn't mean they're ready to let go of Elijah. So verse 16, note, it says, they said unto him, behold, now there be with your servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray you, and seek your master. Now, there's a colon there, which means they paused, because I'm sure Elijah probably gave them a look of like, what? It was probably not registering, like, what are you asking? And so they explain a little further. Well, perhaps, peradventure, the King James says, per, lest peradventure, the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some valley or, or upon some mountain or into some valley. And, and I can only picture Elijah going, don't do that. You shall not send. <laughs> you shall not send. Now, these strong men here, the word actually there, it means sons of strength, and it's usually a term for, like, elite soldiers, which is interesting to me because I can't imagine Ahab or any of his sons assigning elite soldiers from their army to the, prophet, the school of the prophets. So, I don't know where these guys come from. Perhaps these were men who chose to forego service in the army, or, and they chose to be there to, to serve the prophets in some way. I don't know. But whatever the reason, they're in the school there at Jericho, and they would be capable of searching for Elijah. And they're, I guess I get a partially get their question perhaps God has cast him on a mountain somewhere because Elijah had a reputation for miraculously disappearing for years at a time. Remember when Obadiah came to greet him and he's like, Obadiah, go tell your master Ahab, I'm going to meet with him. And Obadiah's like, why do you want to kill me? And he's like, what do you, what do you mean kill you? And he's like, because I'm going to go tell Ahab and then the spirit of the Lord is going to pick you up and drop you off somewhere. And I'm going to look bad. Elijah, he had had moments in his life on, on a couple occasions where he would come and he would say something and the Lord would send him off. And then he'd be just gone for a while and nobody could find him. So, so he has this reputation. And so these guys are thinking, well, maybe God took him to heaven, but maybe he didn't. We should at least check. And this is Elisha's first real test of leadership because he knows where Elijah is. Elijah's with the Lord. He says, you shall not send. It's a waste of time. But verse 17, they don't believe him. Verse 17 says, when they urged him till he was ashamed. And the word here, ashamed, it means to feel like you've done something wrong because everyone around you disapproves of you. So like, you know, he's like, you shall not send, him. and then they, you know, but Elijah, you know, did, you know how this happened, and this happened, and he's like, I was there. I saw him go up to heaven. Yeah, but he's done things like this before, not like this. He lo- what if he's out there starving on a mountain somewhere? He's a mountain man. He's been up in mountains his whole life. What are you talking about? Well, maybe he's in some valley, and he's stuck somewhere. Why would God do? At some point, though, he starts feeling like he's kind of the mean guy, And so, them trying to convince him made him feel like a jerk. So, he he acquiesces in in verse 17. He was ashamed, so he said, send. He said, send, even though he knew it was a waste of time and resources. And then he remains at Jericho while these soldiers go search for three days. It says, and they sent there four fifty men. They sought for three days, but they did not find him. And when they came again to Jericho, for he, Elijah, shah, tarried at Jericho… He said unto them, did I, t- did I not say unto you, go not? Which brings us to the third thing about living out your calling. Me- living out your calling means telling those that you lead, I told you so, when they don't listen to your advice. Wow, only one person got the joke. <laughs> don't ever do that. <laughs> That's not what it means. No, living out your call means being willing to always teach people. Like, I don't think of this in a snarky way, didn't I tell you not to go? He's like let's go over this again. Let's go over God's plan again. He was ready to teach, and that's what, uh, the, that's what living out your call means. It means being willing always to teach people, even when the lessons are repeat lessons. Like, if you have kids, you understand what it's like to give repeat lessons, right? You know, you, you say the same things over and over and over and over and over, and there are times it gets frustrating, right? But that's what our call is, Beverly would remind me so often when I would get frustrated with the kids, she goes, that's why God gave them parents. You know, because you think to yourself, you're like, why don't they understand this? Or Why are we having this conversation again? You're supposed to do your homework. That's why they have parents. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's where they're not just born and they just get leashed out onto the world, unleashed out onto the world. Second Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says, the servant of the Lord must not strive be gentle unto all men, ready to teach in a spirit of meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. Now, this is especially important if you're a parent or a church leader. I needed someone to give me repeat lessons as a kid. I needed someone to give me repeat lessons as a young Christian. So, we should not get frustrated when others need it from us. Well, before Elisha goes to deliver the news to the next school, a word of his new role reaches the leader's of the city of Jericho, and they reach out to him for help. Look at verse 19. It says, And the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray you, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is not, and the ground is barren. Not means it's of bad quality. The water's of bad quality. The ground is barren. It's it means unproductive. It's actually a much more graphic word that I don't want to describe in public t- uh, tonight, but it speaks of something that starts off well, but then it dies before it can bear fruit. We know from earlier portions in the book of First Kings and, of course, Joshua, that Joshua pronounced a curse upon Jericho if it were ever to be rebuilt, right? And then we saw in First Kings that Ahab ignored God's Word, and he had the ancient city rebuilt. Well, that created all sorts of problems, and Ahab and his sons couldn't fix the problems that resulted from that, but now the city leaders here, they turn to God's prophet. Now, think about this for a moment. You've got a bunch of people in a city that was never supposed to exist again, and they're in it, and they're in the trouble that exists because it's not supposed to exist. Now, Elijah could have just been like, well, really, you're having problems. surprise. Surprise this city shouldn't even be. Elijah could have said, well, you've earned what you're going through. But instead, he offers to help them if they will trust the Lord. Look at verse 20. And he said, bring me a new cruise. Uh, A cruise just means a jar. And put salt in it. Okay. Pastor, well, I've got problems. All right, go get a new jar and go put some salt in it. Why a new jar? Well, things used for sacred purposes needed to never have been used for common purposes. That's why Jesus told the disciples to He had a donkey no one had ever ridden on, because He was heading into Jerusalem for a sacred purpose, to be the sacrifice for our sins. Why did He fill it with salt? Well, salt was used to make a covenant. It was common. Almost everybody, merchants, traders, they carried a little pouch of salt in their, their, their belt. And the, the idea was when you made a, a covenant, you made a deal, you would take your salt a little bit of your salt, put it in his pouch, and he'd take a little bit of salt, put it in your pouch. And the idea was you can break the deal if you can get your salt out of his pouch, which, of course, is impossible. But you're never going to get the same exact specs. So salt was used to make a covenant. So even though Ahab had been unfaithful to his side of the covenant, God would remain faithful to his part. And so he says, let's make a fresh start here. Now, again, this is not exactly a normal water purifying solution. Not exactly a crop purifying solution, but the city leaders had to trust that just any jar wouldn't work, and that putting salt into the new jar would work, that God would be faithful to His covenant and would bless them if they trusted the word of His prophet. And the Bible tells us they did. And so verse 21, it says, He went forth into the spring of the waters, the natural spring there, and He cast the salt in there and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. Can I tell you something tonight? Maybe you've messed up. Maybe you look back and you think, could God ever bless my life again? I mean, my life right now, it's the way it is because of decisions I've made in the past. Could God ever use me again? Could God ever bless my life again? Could God ever restore my life again. It's easy for us to look and go, well, that's impossible. I mean, the very fact of where I am now is is my discipline. But the reality is God is so merciful and He's so gracious. He knows our frame that we're simply dust. He does not deal with us according to our sins. I think it's a psalmist who said, David, he said, you know, if the Lord were to mark iniquity, who could stand? none of us. So even though Jericho shouldn't have existed right now, God heals the land all around Jericho. And I love Elisha's word. He says, thus saith the Lord, not me. This is the Lord. He wants to heal your land, even though it shouldn't even be here. You see, living out your calling means meeting people where they're at in their faith. They had enough faith to ask for help, Elijah didn't berate them for not having more faith. Let's tear the city down. He met them where they were, and then he called them to take a step farther. They came to him, said, can you help us? You're the Lord's new leader. Can you help us? And he said, okay, that's good. You're trusting the Lord again. Now take one more step. Do this. He says, start doing things God's way, whether it makes sense or not, and trust Him to take care of you. See, the job of any leader isn't to get a person or people to do things your way. It's to convince them to trust the Lord in His ways, to take those next steps of faith forward in following the Lord. Well, Elisha finally leaves Jericho to pass the word of Elijah's departure to the school in Bethel, and then something interesting happens. Verse 23, and he, Elisha, went up from there unto Bethel, Bethel going up, Bethel situated at the top of the Judean plain. So, Elisha's down in the Jordan Valley, the Jordan Valley is one of the lowest places in the earth, the Dead Sea, of course, being one of the lowest, but the Jordan Valley is right in that same area. And so, he has to go all the way up through the Jordan, up from the Jordan Valley and through the mountain roads to get to Bethel. And as he's on the way toward Bethel, it says here that as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head! go up, thou bald head!" And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tore 42 children of them. And he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Nobody ever made fun of him again. This is one of those stories that usually ends up on an atheist website. There's, you know, 74 reasons why I refuse to believe in the God of the Bible, you know? Let's talk. So, little children, start here. This phrase can be used to describe a boy anywhere from the ages, a child anywhere from the ages of 6 to 30, usually a boy, though. Solomon used this phrase to describe himself in 1 Kings 3.7. He said, I'm but a child, Lord. He said that when he was between 20 and 25 years old. The angel uses this word to refer to Isaac when Abraham took him up to the mountain to sacrifice him. Isaac was at least in his mid-twenties and possibly his early thirties. This word's used for Joseph when he was imprisoned in Egypt for assaulting Potiphar's wife. I don't think they did that with a six year old. While sexualizing boys was common in Egypt back then, Joseph, we know was in his twenties at this point, or late teens at the at the youngest. I don't know how old this group of boys was, but as we read on, it seems much more likely to me that they would be young men rather than small children. When it says here they mocked him, the word there for mock, it actually doesn't mean you talk to someone that you're mocking, but rather you're talking back and forth with your friends about someone that you're mocking. So Elijah… Elijah's just walking up, going to Bethel, minding his own business. And there's this group of at least forty-two people. At least. Possibly more. Because it doesn't say the bears killed all of them. Forty-two people. At least. And they're mocking him. The word means to speak back and forth to each other as part of the verbal ridicule process. So they're just mocking like, Who's that dude? Look at that that's a new prophet guy. You know, they're going back and forth. The word him actually is missing a word there. It's missing a word in before it that's not translated for some reason. I don't know why. They were mocking in him. In other words, they were, it's a spatial indicator, in. So they were mocking in his, he was in his hearing. So it's not just that they saw him at a distance walking by, and then, you know, Elijah happened to overhear one of them, and then he turned his mind-controlled bears on them or something. They're doing it where he can hear. They're doing it on purpose so he can hear. Again, verse 24 tells us that there were at least 42 people in the group. They're ridiculing him to each other in his hearing, and the Bible tells us that Elijah just kept going. It says at verse 24 that he eventually turns back. So, he just, he's just trying to ignore him. He's going to keep walking. So, she's going up by the way. They come out. They're mocking him, he just keep going, and then they say to him, so now they address him. Elijah ignores him and keeps walking, but the mob decides to move in and make it more confrontational. Now they address him specifically, and they say, go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. Now, what that translates to is, keep walking, baldy. Keep walking, baldy. Are you going to try to ignore us? The critique of baldness was a sign of, of the disdain they had for a true prophet of God. You have to remember Bethel was one of the sites of the two sites where the golden bulls were positioned, where Jeroboam, their ancient king, had made those bulls and said, these are the gods that brought you up out of Egypt. This is the most ancient Israeli worship that we had back in the day with Aaron, remember? And so, he didn't want them going down to the temple. So, this is, this is the seat of, like a, like, a bastardized form of Jehovah worship in Israel. False priests and compromised prophets abounded all throughout this city. Baldness was uncommon among ancient Israelis. Luxurious hair was considered a sign of strength from God. I'm losing my strength. So, the, basically, the idea of what they're saying is this What are you doing here? You're a reject. You don't belong here, buddy. You're not one of our prophets oh, you're not going to answer us? Keep walking, Baldy, but you're not going to get away from us. Now, that's the context of their words here. And so I have a really difficult time imagining at least 42 six-year-olds doing something like that. I have a hard time imagining a group of at least 42 six-year-olds being outside the city by themselves, let alone treating a grown-up like this especially in that culture. And I have an even harder time imagining a group of 42 six-year-olds stalking a grown man like they were the children of the corn or something. <laughs> if you're not by age, you might not know what that means. <laughs> Whether this group is a mob of at least 42 teens or... 42 grown men in their 20s. How safe would you feel if they were mocking you where you could hear them, you try to mind your own business and keep walking, and then they start following you and they're calling out challenges. Similar to the time when Elijah called down fire from heaven on those squads of soldiers that were sent to arrest him, I have a hard time understanding why people aren't sympathetic to the guy who's actually being mistreated in the passage. Like the guy who's actually being oppressed. For some reason, hear me out, for some reason, we picture this scenario as an irritable old man he's climbing up to Bethel, drool coming out of his mouth. And all of a sudden, there's these kids at the playground, a bunch of little six-year-olds, like five of them. And they're just minding their own business. And then, you know, they're playing ball in the playground. And one guy's like, oh, hey, that guy has no hair. And they all start giggling. And the next thing you know, the grumpy old man murders him with his pet bears that he keeps around just for the purpose of eating disrespectful children like that somehow for whatever reason. Read the Bible, I'm like, Ugh. it's not five kids. It's at least 42 of a group of somebodies, and they're stalking Him. See, the deeper question is, why is it that we default to assuming the worst about God when we read His Word? There's two reasons we do that. First, our sin nature is bent towards assuming the worst about everybody. Like, my sin nature never thinks to itself, oh, I'm sure they didn't mean any harm by that. My sin nature is like, who do they think they are? And then secondly, my sin nature, our sin nature, constantly seeks to assert that I'm more righteous than God. That's the argument of the modern-day atheist. I'm a better person than the God of the Bible. I'm better than the heroes of the Bible. My morals, my actions, they're better. Therefore, God and His Word, they're not worthy to be trusted or followed. If you listen to any popular atheist, debater, or speaker, they're going to bring up that argument. You know, my life, I'm I'm a better man than Jesus was. I'm a better man than than God is, the God of the Bible is portrayed. Therefore, God and His Word should not be trusted. At this point, however old this mob of people are, Elijah just can't keep walking at this point because they're looking for a confrontation. And so verse 24, he appeals to the Lord for rescue. Verse 24, he turned back. Interesting, the word back here actually translates, should be translated, he turned some time later, which means he kept trying to walk on. He kept trying to ignore them. His goal is he doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to get in a confrontation. He tries to keep walking, but they keep stalking him. And so, finally, he turns to confront them. And then note here, he turned back and what? Yelled at them? No, he looked on them. In fact, before Elijah says anything, before he does anything, he takes a good, hard look at at least 42 people who are wanting to do him harm. As he's looking... I'm sure he's asking the question, is there any way out of this than to appeal to God for aid? And as he looks at them, looks them in the eye, he, he realizes the answer is no, these guys want to hurt me. And so, he, after he looked on them, it says he cursed them in the name of the Lord. The word curse, we think of, you know, witches and witches' brews and things like that. The word here just means to invoke divine harm. He called for God to do something about them, He said something along the lines, if you're not going to leave me alone, then may God deal in anger with you over your wicked behavior. And because they refused to repent, God comes to his servant's aid. Because he didn't summon these bears. He cursed them in the name of the Lord, and there came forth two she-bears out of the wood. And it says, it tear, tore to pieces, split open. It's a violent word. It's probably ended in death, probably killed 42 King James children of them, but again, that word can be used for anywhere from 6 to 30. It's a powerful lesson to the nation about Elijah's role as Elijah's successor. I and mean, we've got one example where the people, the leaders of Jericho, they turn to the Lord, and then they listen to Elijah, and then God blesses them. So, you know, the lesson is listen, you can turn to the Lord and listen to a, God's prophet like the people of Jericho did, and God will bless you. Or you can rebel against the Lord and oppose Elisha, and God will deal with you. No different than when Elijah was around. So, as a final principle here, living at your calling, out your calling means cursing people with a violent death when they threaten you. <laughs> Just kidding. Living at your calling means trying to avoid confrontation with wicked people whenever possible, but appealing to God for aid when it's not possible. In other words, Elijah didn't take matters into his own hands. He didn't be like, all right, I guess this is how I'm going down in a blaze of glory. Who's first? Nor did he flee from the task that God set him on, just because this was a difficult obstacle. He sought to do the task God gave him when that was no longer possible because of their interference, he prayed for the Lord to deal with the obstacle. I know as a parent it can be difficult sometimes to lead my children when they're making it painful or hard to do so. It's hard. There are times when like they're not being respectful or they're not being open to what you're trying to say, and all they just they just got that tunnel vision like I did when I was a teenager and or when I was little. But we can't be unfaithful to lead them just because they're making it painful to our hearts, say things that hurt, or because they're being difficult. Husbands, you and I can't be unfaithful to lead our wives because she's not being supportive. And we can't just decide to fight back against our wives or our kids or any other people that we lead because we feel insulted. We need to pray. We need to stay on task. We need to trust the Lord to deal with the obstacle in, a w- in whatever way He deems best so that we can finish the task that He set us on. I'll tell you this. One of the biggest lessons I've learned as a parent is that there are times when you need to gently, lovingly say what needs to be said and then, and then just cry it out to the Lord and ask Him to Move. I found that to be the case when dealing with with, you know people I'm trying to help here at the church. There are times you share the truth and they just don't want to hear it. And you just gotta be as gentle as you can, be as truthful as you can, you know, to, to get the task done, and then you just cry out to God and say, God, please move in their heart. Living at your calling means remembering that you're the messenger. You have a job to do, but you're not the Lord. You're just his messenger. And if someone's opposing you, the truth is they're really opposing the Lord. My kids have been so good. I feel like I have parenting on easy mode with my kids and because they they have been, they, their hearts have been very toward the Lord, and I'm so blessed for that. But in those moments when it feels like, you know, we're not connecting well. I feel like, man, I'm not, they're not receiving from me. You know, I have to remember, Lord, they're not really upset with me. They, I'm the obvious person to be mad at right now, but the truth is they're struggling with what you're trying to do in their heart. And as a parent, that should break my heart. If there's an enemy out there who's trying to mess with my kid, I remember growing up as a young believer, I, was, I got saved when I was 12, and I would read the Psalms, where like David, I think they're called the imprecatory Psalms, like where David's like, get my enemies, cut their tongues in half. And I would read them, and I'm like, God, I don't really have any enemies. I mean, yeah, I've got some people that don't like me, or like when I got saved, I had, I had some people would mock me when I'd share my faith and stuff at school, but like, like people weren't, I didn't have enemies. I mean, I had a good life. So I I would read them and I didn't understand them. I mean, I got them because I knew what David was going through, but like I didn't, I'm like, how do I pray a prayer like that? I don't have any enemies like that. And then I had kids. No, just kidding. No, then I had kids. And then you ran into these walls, right? Like where you couldn't get through. And then all those Psalms started to take on new meaning because there was an enemy out there who wanted to wreck my kids want to deceive them, break their heart, or discourage them to the point where they, they wanted to give up. My prayer life started to change. It was like, God, we defeat the enemy's plans, or you, you cut his head off, defeat his you know, plans so thoroughly that he runs away with his tail tucked between his legs, or don't let the enemy prevail in my kids' lives. Remember, you're God's messenger. It's the Lord that has to get through to whoever it is that you're trying to lead. Cry out to Him. Well, Elijah visits a school there in Bethel. We don't know how long he stays. It doesn't sound like it's too long. Verse 25, he went from thence to Mount Carmel. Most Bible teachers believe there was another school at Carmel. And then from there he went and returned to Samaria. Returned means he's coming home. Second Kings 6.32 tells us that Elijah's home was in Samaria. Why is that interesting? Well, that's because that's where the king lives. That's the, that's the capital city. Samaria is the royal city. It's where the palace is. So, Elisha lives in the, right at the heart of wickedness. Now, that's something his own mentor didn't do. His own mentor was a mountain man. He just was always in the mountains somewhere. But Elisha… He's got a home right in the heart of wickedness, and we're going to meet that wickedness firsthand when we study King Jehoram next week when we get to chapter three. So, read that for next Sunday night. So, where does that leave us? Well, when we talk about God's call, this whole chapter is about God's call, and when you and I are trying to follow God's call, we must first know what it is, and I think I mentioned this last week, but I'll say it again. If you don't know what God's called you to, then Spend some time seriously asking Him, what's, what's my role? And sometimes it's not going to be elaborate. Sometimes it's going to be love your wife like Christ loves the church. Invest into your kids. Serve the people in your workplace. Shine for me. It doesn't have to be elaborate or something totally out of the blue that you never conceived in your mind. But it, it might be something different than you expect, too. It might be something I remember when God was calling me to the ministry and I thought, that's there's just been a wrong number. You know, you you've dialed the wrong number, Lord. I am not the guy you should be looking for. So it's not uncommon to have the Lord call you to something unexpected. So if you don't know, then first find out what that is. Go seek him. And then secondly you have to answer it. Like God you can know what God's called you to do, but you can be like Jonah and run up in the opposite direction. So you have to answer it. You have to say, Lord, I'll embrace this call for my life. I'll embrace this. And then thirdly, as we learn tonight, you need to recognize that there's going to be obstacles and opportunities to fulfill the call God's given to you. And you and I must not become discouraged by those obstacles, and we must not become lazy with the opportunities. We need to live out God's call for our life. Amen? So are you doing that? Are you living out God's call for your life faithfully? let's all stand. Lord, you know where each of us is at tonight. You know if we've got, like we know what you've called us to, and we're, you know, maybe our struggle is living it out, or or maybe we don't. So I I pray for every person who's here tonight that you would speak to their heart and show them what their need is. Maybe they just need to be encouraged to keep being faithful, Lord, that encourage them to keep being faithful. Lord, you know if maybe some of us, we've, we've had a call, and we're just not answering it. We're not willing. Lord, soften, soften any heart that's there tonight. And then, Lord, if maybe there are some who they know what they're supposed to do, and, and they've accepted that challenge, they've accepted that call, but they're not living it out correctly. They get frustrated and, or even lazy, maybe. Lord, you know, and so I pray you'd encourage my dear brothers and sisters with that tonight to stay Stay in that that particular walk that you've given to them, that particular calling to to enter into it wholeheartedly, anew and afresh tonight, whatever it might be. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to do that, so we pray you'd fill us all with your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we'd all recognize that there is a hope of your calling. All of us have a hope that you've called us to something. We have a place in the body of Christ. So, Lord, with that hope of knowing that each of us has, plays a vital role in your plan. Lord, we say yes to it, and we say, Lord, we want to do it with all our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.